As we're singing those two songs, I was thinking, man, that's awesome. We're singing like two of my favorite songs. And then I remembered I picked them. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, I don't know what that means, if I'm losing it or, but um, at least I still like them. I mean, that's, but uh, yeah, those, those songs have very, <clears throat> very special meaning to me, um, especially um, you know, Jesus walks with thee and talks with, with thee. And, um, that was not always true. That was not always true for me. And, uh, you know, I can remember like it was yesterday hearing that song for the first time and just thinking, what a joke. Just not understanding God and the Lord and the Bible and not being able to get how people could believe in Jesus. Um, of course, that was before I knew that he wasn't just a fairy tale and a story, that he was actually someone who walked the face of the earth. Jesus lived. He was here. You have to deal with that. I mean, seriously. Um, and he made proclamations. He didn't just make proclamations to, you know, he, he didn't write music and he didn't um, just make controversial statements. He, he proclaimed himself to be the Lord, the, the God-man, the, the King of the universe, our Savior. Those are bold proclamations, and and as Jay, as uh, you know, Josh McDowell said a long time ago, e either you you have to ask yourself three things about Jesus. Then either he is the Lord, um, or he's a lunatic, he's crazy, or he's a liar. But he can't be the Lord and crazy, the Lord and a liar. And so who was he? And again, we have to deal with that. We have to deal with Jesus walked on the face of the earth. And, and we have this book here and it's amazing. I love books and I love reading books and I love libraries and you go in there and there's thousands of books. And it's like, this is the oldest book in the world. Do you realize that? This is the oldest science book in the world the oldest history book in the world, the oldest archaeology book, the oldest philosophy book in the world. So every single book after has to line itself with the, the wisdom, the authority, and the accuracy of the Bible, not the other way around. The Bible doesn't have to prove itself to a book written two years ago. I mean, that's crazy. Go into academia, and academia so you know, you, you go in, into the, you know, forgive me, into the, you know, the, the British, you know, colleges where, you know, there is no wrong there. So, you know, if you're a, a, a British scholar, then, then that means, you know, that's the, the, the absolute authority of academia that there is in the world. Um, written many, many, many years after the Bible um, by mortal men. And so part of what we come into today and hold on to your hats because we have 
we have a, a little journey. But our journey begins in the Bible. And see, the problem that we have with today's conflict with Israel and the Palestinians is people want to pick and choose their dates. They want to pick and choose when we're going to start the clock, whether it's 1948 or October 7th. Um, how about in Genesis 1? How about with Abraham? How about with God? And again, that's why we have to come, come into a realization with, with the Bible that th this is, a, this is a, a, a documented history book. So when you want to know about the history of Israel, whose land is it? The history of the Palestinians, who are they? Where did they come from? Well, you've got to go to the Bible. You go to the first book. You go to the book that tells us about the origins of who these people are. And so we do not come to this topic lightly. And I hope we do not come as Americans. And I certainly hope we don't come with the hope that the media is going to tell us the truth. Because first of all, they're starting on the wrong page. Um, if, you, if you're not starting with the Bible, then you don't know what you're talking about especially in this, in this situation. So what happens is on October 7th at about 6.30 in the morning in a, in a high holiday called the Sukkot. Now that's the, the Jewish, and it goes again, back to the Bible. Where do we come up with this holiday? Back to the Bible, after the Exodus, part of the feasts and the, and, and the festivals of, of, of the Israelis. And this is a high holiday for them. It's a religious day. It's kind of a meshing of Thanksgiving. And it's a, a remembrance of the 40 years of wandering in the desert uh, for the Jews. Real time, real event, real thing that happened. Um, and they had to, you know, build temporary shelters because they were living in tents and on the go for 40 years. And so the, the Jews remember that every year. And, and a part of that is this hope this hope of the coming Messiah. Sadly, because they missed the Messiah. They missed Jesus. And so, let's make no mistake who Israel is today. The Israelis are not religious, believing Jews. In fact, most of them are very secular and deny God and are not walking. And we'll talk about this in the upcoming weeks. They're not walking in the faith. In fact, on October 7th, you have a bunch of young adults in a music festival participating in a modern-day Woodstock rave trance that completely would shame the Lord in their activities on the high holiday. So when they should be worshiping God, they're actually, again, involved in cultish behavior, not biblical behavior, in absolute rebellion, do, not doing what the Bible says. That's not to say that they got what's coming to them, but we'll talk about the blessings and the curses that occur when you don't follow and obey the word of God. And so on October 7th, we see 
Palestinians raining, you know, 5,000 rockets. They used motorcycles, bulldozers, Mike's favorite paragliders. But they used these as weapons, which is amazing to think that with the Iron Dome, a, a system designed to shoot down rockets, which again, why would you have a system designed to shoot down rockets over Ravensdale? Well, you wouldn't, unless the people in Enumclaw were shooting off rockets at you all the time. So that's one of the things that we have to put in our little, little feather. Um, they have videos, uh, shameful videos, not of uh, the Western media, but videos of the actual terrorists who videoed themselves doing atrocities with Israeli citizens door to door with mothers, with children, with elderly. And again, let's not, let, let, let's not get lost in the misinformation. It's very, very clear without a shadow of a doubt that the paragliders came in and killed young people in a music festival. There's no excuse for that, none. Uh, that's absolute terrorism by definition. With that being said, then there's a response there's going to be a response, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But one of the things that we have to take note of that doesn't get reported on greatly is a phrase that was being yelled out while this was happening. A phrase that was Allah Akbar. Allah Akbar. Which means God is greater. What do they mean? I thought it was just you know, disgruntled Palestinians who, who want more land, who feel oppressed. What, what do they mean? God is greater. This is why we have to clearly understand. This is why we're, we're blessed to know the truth, which is this is a spiritual battle. Their God is Islam. Our God is Yahweh. Their God is Islam, the Muslim God. They think they're attacking the Israeli God. They are, but again, most of the Israelites aren't really following Yahweh. And in that, as they do that, they always include America with Israel. Um, we have to understand that. We're tied in as far as their eyes can see. So as they're doing this and performing this act, saying God is greater, God is greater, they're making the definitive statement and point about their intentions and what it is they're doing unequivocally. Why? Well, because it started a long time ago. And let me tell you something. We again have the blessing and the benefit of this book that's never been wrong. It's never been wrong historically. It's never been wrong in its predictions in the future. In the beginning, it tells us what's going on. It also tells us what's going to happen at the end. And unfortunately, because it's a spiritual battle, it's never going to end. Um, it's not complex. The media will say, this is so complex. It's so deeply, it's not complex. It's not complex at all. Um, it's pretty simple. This is how you get land in the world. You either God gives you the land, either you settle into the land, right? There's nobody there and you settle. Uh, you can buy the land. Remember this thing called the Louisiana Purchase? Um, you can buy land. 
Again, we've seen the, the problem when you don't know your history, when you don't pay attention in school and, and learn that, you know, um, the Dutch actually bought and purchased land in South America. They didn't steal it. They didn't conquer it. They didn't take it. They bought it. And so when you fast forward into modern day times and everybody's complaining about, well, how is it that there's so many Dutch people owning land in South Africa? Well, maybe it's because they bought it. Did you take a simple history lesson or were they oppressed? They weren't oppressed. Well, we have the same thing here today. You can buy land. You can war for land. Let's make no mistake about that. Most of the nations that we see, uh, they've got their land because they fought for it. Um, whether you like that or not, that's the way of the world. And then finally, through treaties. And ironically, most of the time, the way you get a treaty is you have a war. So they kind of go hand in hand. That's how you get land. Do you know how you get peace? You settle it. You either just, you're the first one there, and so nobody debates that, or you buy it, or you war for it, or you have a treaty. It's the same way. It's the same look. It's the same way you get land in the beginning as the way you get land at the end. And this is very, very important for us to understand, and, and we'll get to more of that. The series that we're going to be doing is, is, is Israel and Palestinian. It's a, to show the biblical history of the Ishmaelites, the biblical history of Israel, uh, the political history that we see, and how we see that biblically, the, the prophetic history that we see throughout the Bible of this issue. And then there's a future to this. There's, there's a future that we need to understand. Again, our goal is not is not political. It's not political. We're not coming to this as Americans. We're not coming to this as, as Christians supporting Israelis because we understand that, that those who bless Israel will be blessed by God, right? Um, that's not our objective. It really isn't. We want to understand how, how land works. Um, Remember, there's been a lot of resets. We see this again historically in the Bible. We saw in the flood. There was a great flood, and every great civilization has the documentation of the flood. And when the flood occurred, there was the Garden of Eden. Everybody stopped there, started there. Well, now everybody starts all over reset in Mesopotamia. Where is that? The Middle East. Okay, So that's the heart of the beginning of the modern world as we know it today. Nobody debates that. We see this, this person, Abram, or Abraham, as his name's going to be changed to. He goes from Ur to Israel. There were already Canaanites in the land of Israel. It's actually Canaan in the beginning. Important to know. We're going to see another reset, though, where there's going to be an exodus, where Israel's going to be slaves for 400 years. They're going to be slaves in Egypt. They're going to go from Egypt and go to the promised land. Who promised them land? Joseph? Jacob? No. God promised them. We read it earlier in Genesis 12. This is God's promised land by God. That's how one way you get land is God gives it to you. 
We see more resets. We see Israel in rebellion against God and God uh, judges Israel and they're actually deported from their own land. God removes them from the promised land and God uses foreign nations to judge Israel. We saw this over and over again in the cycle of sin and judges. We see it greatly with the Babylonians and the Persians and then later with the Romans. And so we see a part of occupation in Israel. We see a part of Israel being displaced because of their rebellion. That is not new. That's history. And that happens over and over and over again. Another great reset and a very, very important one is 1948. Almost the final reset right after World War II. What happens after you have a world war? Just imagine if every one of us in this room represents the world, we represent a country and we pick sides and we go to war and we go to battle. And at the end of that battle, we all take a deep breath and go, okay, we realize that Germany wanted to take over everything. We realize that Japan wanted all the islands in the Pacific. You don't win. You don't get that. Okay, here's what you get. It's called a treaty, right? And you had all a global reset. You had a global reset of land, of territory, of who owns what, 1948. And part of that was Israel getting their land back. We'll talk about that. <coughs> well, there's a lot of things that are happening in this. And I've gotten so many questions. That's why we're doing a series. And that's why we're going to try to not go too slow, but not too fast. There's a lot of rhetoric. There's a lot of things out there, you know. Um, so what do we do with the Palestinians and Hamas? And are Hamas Palestinians or Palestinians Hamas? We got to understand basics. Okay, if you're a, a people called Palestinians and you vote in the terrorists called Hamas, you voted them in. Are you Hamas as Palestinians or do you continue to just say, no, that's not us, that's them, even though you voted them in and they're still in. Um, that's something to think about. Again, sneaking into parties and shooting unarmed citizens and youth in a non-militaristic environment, that's terrorism. Using people as human shields, using women and children to protect your, your base. Um, that's one of the things we keep hearing about. Uh, we know the charters of Hamas. We know their, their, you know, bill of rights and declaration of independence. And they're very clear. In fact, they sing songs and our lovely university students who are geniuses at 18 are marching around America right now, singing from the river to the sea, from the river to the sea. Do you know what that means? That means that the Palestinians get the land from the river to the sea. If we had a map here, that would mean to the river, to the sea, and in between is Palestine and no more Israel. Okay, in their songs that our foolish kids are singing is annihilate and destroy Israel. Um, by the way, there's... 50 Muslim countries in the world that the Palestinians are welcome to move to. There's 22 Arab nations right around them that they're welcome to move into. 
ironically, the Arab nations don't want them. Um, the only nation that is willing to live with them is Israel. And Israel has one nation. So, you know, let's do the math. Some of you, I know we got a couple mathematicians in the room. If you've got 50 countries, Muslim countries, and one Jewish country, and you eliminate the Jewish country, what are you doing? You're eliminating the nation of Israel. Um, and that's their charter. That's their goal. They don't make any any statements otherwise and we'll see how that's played out well what about israel's overreaction i mean israel has a bigger army they have more more bombs they you know when they shoot off a bomb and it goes into a building and it kills women and children it's killing women and children true that that's a horrific thing so then they get to say genocide and occupation and apartheid and human rights violators and massacre Kind of reminds me of the, the Princess Bride movie, you know, Andre the Giant. It's not my fault that I'm bigger and stronger. Maybe you shouldn't poke the bear. Um, but we have to be sensitive about that and seriously about an overreaction and, and think about that for a second and contemplate what that is. And yes, it's the idea that Hamas strikes first, Israel strikes worst, right? Um, We've got to look at and consider the idea of, and right now there's a big concern with the escalation of World War III, Israel and Palestine, then Iran gets involved, then America gets involved, then Iraq and Yemen, and, and now next thing you know, it's a world war. Um, we also have a lot of questions about the end times. How does this fit into the end times? And right now I'm seeing all kinds of you know, pastors and all kinds of statements. This is it. This is it. And it's like, it's funny because the other 50 times that Israel's been attacked, it hasn't been it. So it might not be it this time either. Um, we got to consider that and take another look because at some point, the, at some point, the labor pains actually become the birth pains actually become the baby or the end, right? So where are we at? We'll look at that. Um, well, <clears throat> it's just kind of a opening to the intro and today's an intro to the intro. Um, today we want to look at the biblical history of Israel um, and the Palestinians. And today in specific, we want to look at the, the, the conflict uh, overview of the history of the Palestinians, but really the history of uh, Ishmael. The history of Ishmael, we're going to look at this in three ways. Uh, the Bible and the Ishmaelites, Esau and the Ishmaelites, and then Palestine and the Ishmaelites. Um, turn with me to Genesis 17. Um, and again, as you're doing that, I just want to remind you that the, this story does not begin in 1948. Um, that's just a diversion. By the way, the Palestinians and the Muslims don't accept that date anyway. So that our American reporters continue to use that is, is really just a, a, a complete defiance 
over the realization that the Middle East is saying we are in a, a battle of religion between Islam and the world. That's what they're clearly saying, but we, want it. We, don't, we don't want to say it. We refuse to say it. Our schools refuse to say it. That makes our schools absolute liars, which is why when these kids grow up and they go to university, they start chanting things that they don't know what the heck they're talking about. But I digress. Uh, Genesis 17, and now we get a repeat of what we read in Genesis 12, but it's been some years later. Uh, about 13 years later. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. And he did. I will multiply you exceedingly. And he did. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. God's covenant is is with Abraham or Abram verse 5 no longer shall you be named called Abram but your name shall be called Abraham which means father of a nation this is a single man in his 90s with no children has just been renamed to father of nations this is God for I will make you a father of a multitude of nations happened and I will make you exceedingly fruitful happened and I will make nations of you happened and kings will come forth from you happened and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for how long an everlasting covenant how long does Israel get to keep their land well put your time clock on and dial in there everlasting okay that's when it expires. That's when the contract expires. That's when the deed expires. It's everlasting. It doesn't. To be God to you and to your descendants, and I will give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Who was there first? Canaan. Canaanites were there first. God gives Abraham and his descendants, the land. Well, I don't like that. Well, take it up with God. But it's from God, and it happened in Genesis 17, which, by the way, wasn't yesterday. It was about 4,000 years ago. So this, this exchange of land happens about 4,000 years ago, and we'll see that, well, the Canaanites didn't exactly go for it either. Um, but that didn't matter because God willed it, and so it happened. But this is an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant with you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. So look, they're supposed to keep this covenant with God forever. Okay, They're, they're supposed to be uh, in this everlasting relationship. God, or God makes these promises to Abraham through his will. Um, and so this book, the Bible then becomes a, a, a deed, you know, when you go and you purchase a property and you, you go through escrow and what does escrow do? Escrow actually looks at all the titles and all the deeds and they make sure that you own the land. They make sure that there's, there's, 
nothing that's infringing upon that. There's, there's no lawsuits. There's no debts. There's no loans that are out. It's like this document that the title and trust is, is producing and saying, okay, this is who actually owns the land. Now we're giving that and we're giving it to you, the buyer. Nothing's changed. Th this is a deed. This is a, a, a title document that we have in our, in our fingertips telling us, well, whose land is it? It's Israel's. For how long? Forever. Um, that's our starting point. Again, this is a spiritual issue. Well, well, what happened? It's pretty easy. It doesn't take a genius to figure this out, right? It's in plain English. What happened? Well, turn back to Genesis 16, verse 1 through 5. Now, Sarai, Abraham and Sarah have been promised a baby, and um, they're both old and beyond childbearing years, and they don't have a baby yet. God promised them a baby, but they don't have a baby. So now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai and said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, <coughs> Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, his wife. A quick note, just in the back of your mind, the child is going to be the child of an Egyptian mother and a Hebrew father. Okay, just as a note. And he went to, into Hagar and she conceived. And when he, she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done me upon you. I gave my maid into your arms. But when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Unfortunately, we see the, the beginning of the despise, the beginning of the, the anger, the rage <clears throat> between what's going to be another nation. In verse 11, we see the angel of the Lord comes and informs Hagar. Well, who is this child going to be? Because Hagar's the maid. And Hagar the maid has just had a child with, with Abram, but Abram's wife has now changed her mind and is angry. And so, well, what's going to happen with my child? My child's life is in danger. And so the angel of the Lord in verse 11 comes and says, Behold, you're with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Which means God hears. I am not childless. God hears. Because the Lord has given need to your affliction, and he will be a wild donkey of a man. One of the great nicknames for unfortunately, the Arab nations, that they are a wild donkey of a man, which has proven to be true over the years. His hand will be against everyone. Look at the Middle East. Who are they in treaty and peace with? Nobody. They'll come together for five minutes to fight Israel, <clears throat> but in the middle of fighting Israel, they'll turn on each other. 
you want to learn anything about this, just watch this awesome movie called Lawrence of Arabia. And Lawrence of Arabia, and he's a, a, a British uh, soldier, and he goes to the Arab nations, and, and it's just, you know, uh, after World War I, and he's trying to help the Arab nations become a coalition so that they can actually be one nation, and all they want to do is fight each other. And so the whole movie is them getting a bunch of fights in the desert. It's great. Um, <clears throat> they're a wild donkey of a man. They don't even like each other. Even the, the Muslims have, the, you know, there are three different divisions of Muslims and who do they kill more than anybody? Each other. Um, their hand is, will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Okay, so, so <clears throat> Abraham and, and Hagar and Sarai have this amazing genius idea to thwart God's command, to thwart God's uh, statement that he's going to give Abraham and Sarah um, a child, but they decide to do it themselves. So <clears throat> let's be clear. Back to Genesis 17, verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations. King, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man of a hundred years old? Of course, that didn't seem to bother him with the Hagar plan, but, um, and will Sarah, who's 90 years old, she old, will she bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. So you see this conflict, verse 19, but God, but God steps in. I love this statement. No, it's what every child needs. It's what we all need. No, but God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear your son, not Ishmael. Again, let's be clear. The covenant is between Abraham and his child, an everlasting covenant forever. Verse 19, now Abraham has another son, a firstborn son. That's a big deal, isn't it? No, God chooses. Um, God says, no, it's not Ishmael. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Ergo, the statement, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not the God of Abraham, Ishmael, and Esau. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very, very important for us to, to understand. <clears throat> and as for Ishmael. I have heard you and behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful. No doubt a lot of Arabs in the world. He will be fruitful and multiply exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. Again, no doubt the Middle East is a great nation of Arab people. But 
my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And lo and behold, what do you think happened? Here comes Isaac. But see, there's, there's an issue here. That now, now we have an Isaac and we have an Ishmael. And if our biblical history tells us anything, we should know and understand that the firstborn isn't the one who is always the one to care to carry on the heir. That's actually not the biblical way. The biblical way is that God chooses. God is going to be the one who picks and chooses. Now there's blessings, right? There's blessings for for Ishmael, he's going to be great. He's going to multiply. He's going to be a great nation. Um, it's kind of a nice thing to have oil under all of your land. Uh, that'll make some pesos. And by the way, you you do have a, a choice. You have a choice. You can have billions and billions of dollars of oil that you're able to produce and produce more dirt or you can produce something like Dubai. When you look at Dubai, Dubai is actually a poor Arab country. They're a poor oil-based country. The whole reason why the king in Dubai started building buildings in Dubai was they were just a, a little country that just had a little bit of oil. So he looked and said, the Sheik looked and said, you know what, I want a future for my people. And stones, instead of building a bunch of missiles and a bunch of bombs, this guy decides to build Dubai. And if you've never seen Dubai, it's the most beautiful place on earth <clears throat> made with oil money in the dirt, in the sand. They have islands in the ocean that they just built out of nothing. It's an absolute sheer spectacular um, thing that you can see done when people who want to put together something positive can do. Um, that's what they did in Dubai. That's not what they do in the Middle East. They like bombs and dirt. That's not what they did in Gaza. They built tunnels and missiles. We keep hearing part of the narrative. They're just, they're too small. They're too small in a tiny place. You ever hear of Manhattan? Uh, been to Manhattan lately? Really small, smaller than Dubai. You know what? If you can't go out, you go up. There's nothing that stops them from building skyscrapers that go up that house everybody they want. And if they all want to have penthouses, have penthouses. Um, something that we have to think about. But God has established this from the beginning. Ishmael has, <clears throat> has some form of protection, right? He's, he's uh, going to have family. He's going to have land. He's going to have a lot of things. Now in Genesis 21, we see as the, the story continues, Genesis 21 verse eight, and the child grew and was weaned. This is Ishmael and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian whom she had born to Abraham mocking. Therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. So Sarah sees, again, Isaac is, is um, uh, Ishmael's about 14 years older than Isaac. 
So she has her son finally. He's supposed to be the heir of the throne, but she's got another son with another woman and he's older and she's doing the math. Um, we're old. We're getting ready to die. When this goes down, the older, bigger son is going to take it over one way or another, right? And she's hostile towards the whole situation anyway that she created. Um, <clears throat> verse 12, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named, and of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. There's a blessing for Ishmael because he is a descendant of Abraham. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away and departed and wandered about the wilderness of Beersheba and the water and the skin was used up. She left the boy under the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away and said, do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite to him and lifted up her voice and wept. Could you imagine your You've been sent away. You've got your baby. The only thing that you can think of at this point is, well, we're both going to die. I'm going to put my baby under a bush so that I don't have to see it. Um, that's where she's at. That's the point of where she's at. She's sitting there. She's weeping. She's dying. She's going to watch her child die. Verse 17 and God heard the lad crying. I always love those moments. And God heard their cry. God hears us. God hears your calamity. He hears your distress. God is here. God sees. Uh, we don't want any calamity. We don't want any distress. But there is hardship in life. Verse 17, and God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God kept his promise. And Ishmael's family became a great nation. How? She's a single mom. Can't make it as a single mom. Um, you can. And they went off and they lived in Paran. Um, by the land of Egypt, which is, again, that's where she was from. Well, this is a great history and docu documentary of the origin of Ishmael. Of Ishmael. Well, who's Ishmael? Well, this is just the beginning. This is the beginning of getting to the Palestinians. It's the beginning of getting to um, the Edomites or Esau. Uh, but you see the very beginning. This is a family feud. And there's no pain greater than the pain that's caused within your own family. There's no pain greater than between a man and a scorned woman, right? So the very, very beginning of, of this relationship, of, of the onset of the Ishmaelites and the, and the Arab nations. Why are they called Arabs, by the way? Because they're from Arabia. OK, 
Okay, it's not a, a, a slam. It's just that's a general naming of a group of peoples. So who are the group of peoples? The group of peoples are the peoples of the Ishmaelites. And we'll learn next week the peoples of the Edomites, Esau. They're the, the peoples of the Canaanites, the Philistines. They're all related. How they're related? Well, we'll come back next week and take another step. Um, but before we do that, it's again, I, I can't put a greater emphasis um, on us than understanding what, what this book means. Um, we, we just got an insight into this war that's happening right now. Now you kind of see, oh yeah, I can see how there could be some uh, hard feelings. Well, they don't stop 4,000 years ago. They're just getting started. The party is just getting started. Um, we have to understand the conflict. We have to understand and think about, you know, as Americans, um, hmm, this sounds a little familiar. What if we came to a land in America? Because remember, Abraham didn't start in Canaan, right? He moved to Canaan. Americans didn't start in America. They started in, in England and then came on the, on the Mayflower, right? And there were already people here. So, so we, we can see and begin to understand what, how original history could to take shape and form and how if you had um, American Native Indians that were here in America and, and then we had wars, we had treaties, and we had purchases, that's how America came together. Well, we can explain that and historically lay that out, but you would also understand that there would be a grouping of peoples who may not like that, right? To this day, I would argue that one of the best things, the most, the most amazing things about America today is we keep our treaties with the Native Americans. We have over... 350 independent nations that live and exist within America. Do you know that? We call them Indian reservations. Just go and talk to Muckleshoot and Puyallup and, and Lummi. And what do they call themselves? We're the Lummi Nation, the Muckleshoot Nation. Not just a tribe, they're a nation. They have their own rules, their own laws, their own government. If you looked at America, it would look like Swiss cheese with all the different dots. Okay, well, <clears throat> we've both learned how to cohabitate together in a two-state system. It can be done. I'm not saying that it's a perfect system for them. Uh, I'm also not saying that that's our fault. I would blame socialism more than anything, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, here's the thing. Can you imagine that a bunch of Indians from the Muckleshoot tribe paraglided in here, motorcycled in here, and started shooting rockets into Maple Valley. There would be no justification for that. We understand while there may be hard feelings, we may understand that they didn't like the way it turned out. Um, but there's no justification for that kind of response and action. And at some point, you have to have your line of, well, didn't we reset that? 
in what year did we make our, our agreement with you, Muckleshoot tribe? And have we not kept that agreement? And I, I hate to say it, but I mean, at a certain point, you fought for this. You either won or you lost. This is the treaty that you make. Uh, Americans had to do the same thing. You think that they, you know, got everything that they wanted. That's the nature of a treaty. Um, but these are the kinds of things that we have to navigate. And we have a better understanding of American, you know, issues because we've grown up here than maybe in the Middle East. But it's not that complicated. It really isn't. Uh, and I don't want you guys to, to think that. And, and what's more important for us, this is what's more important, that as Christians, how do we evaluate this? How do we look at this issue? Well, again, as Christians, the way we evaluate is go, what does the Bible say? That's the first point. And that's what we're going to do. What does the Bible say about this issue? I want to I know more about the biblical history of, of this group. The other thing I need to say is the Bible is not bashful about human suffering. The Bible is not bashful about death. Um, people die. We die. People are evil. People are sinful. People are wicked. Evil, sinful, wicked people uh, kill each other. War is horrible. We, we, we can't even begin to fathom the horrors of war. There's no good war. There, there's no nice war. War is absolutely horrific. Um, that being said, we have to be more concerned about the real punishment of life. The real punishment of life is the afterlife, is what happens when we die, because we will die one way or another. Don't misquote me here, but it doesn't seem to matter to God how we die exactly. What matters to God is where we're at when we die. It matters to God who you are and who you follow. And, and, and the speck that time is on earth in the flesh is nothing compared to eternity in heaven with him. And so he will painstakingly go through everything that he can possibly conceive of to save a generation of Israelites to get them to the finish line. And he's doing the same thing with us individually. We will suffer pain. We will have trials. We will not get everything we wanted to get. We all had dreams here growing up as kids. Most of us probably didn't even come close to the dreams. I wanted to hit a home run at Yankee Stadium. That was my dream. Just like Roger Maris. Not a big home run, just a little one. Um, but here's the thing, and I don't want us to lose sight of this because there's a lot of noise right now. A lot of noise. There's, there's, I mentioned the pre-labor, right? Is this, is this pre-labor? Is this birth pangs? Um, the pre-labor and the birth pains remind us of what? A baby's coming. There's a baby and it's coming. These wars, these, these things that are happening remind us of what? The end is near. And the question that I have is, 
Are you ready? Because that's what I'm concerned about. I can't stop a war in the Middle East. I, I can understand it, but I can't stop it. I, I can't stop marches. But when I see the rage, when I see the hostility in America for, for, for college students, what I'm seeing is a complete understanding of what's actually important in life. And their soul is at stake and they don't even know it. And then we get caught up in arguing about political things where we should be talking about spiritual things because you know what? This book is true. This book is real. And this book has been true and real for 4,000 years. You might want to start paying attention. And this book told us about, about Jesus Christ coming on the face of the earth. And this book told us that, you know who Jesus is? He's part of the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He is God incarnate. He is the bread of life. He is the Word who became flesh. This book says that God came here on earth as Jesus. Well, I don't believe that. Neither did I. I didn't believe he walks with me and talks with me. I didn't believe that either. So I started paying more attention. And you know, the more I knocked on his door, he answered. The more I read his book, I learned. The, the more I went to him, I had relationship and understanding with him. The more I humbled myself and you know what? Maybe I don't know everything at 10 years old at 20 years old, at 30 years old, at 40 years old, at 50 years old. I still don't know everything, but I know a place that does. I, I know a place where I, where I can go that will give me the blueprint for my marriage, that will give me the blueprint for my parenting, that will give me the blueprint for how I'm supposed to live. And it reminds me that, that Jesus came and he lived and he died on the cross. Why? Because that happened. You don't see people hanging on crosses. Why did they put him on the cross? Why did he allow himself to be on the cross? That was done because he was dying for our sins. He was making a payment for our sins, for your sins, for my sins. Why? Because the end is near. Death is always near. And he wants to make sure that in our sinful life that that sin is forgiven and washed away. And it's done by his blood. Well, how do we know? How do we know that he was really the God man? Well, we know because there were witnesses. We just got done studying the witnesses of Elizabeth and Zachariah and Joseph and Mary who were witness to the virgin birth. Then we saw that there were witnesses to Jesus dying and being born again. Whoa, whoa, now you lost me. People don't die and raise from the dead, right? That's right. They don't. They do not. They do not. They do not. It doesn't happen. That's why when it happened with Jesus, it was special. If it happened every day, then what would be the big deal? Oh yeah, Jesus rose from the grave, just like Chuck. Remember Ricky? Ricky, the other he rose from the grave too. Everybody's doing it. It's so cool. It doesn't happen. That's the miracle. Amen. You missed it. 
It can't happen. No, it did happen. There were over 500 witnesses in this book that wrote about it in a book that's never wrong about anything. If you don't believe this book, listen, don't ever read another book in your life because they don't have as much accuracy and truth as this book. So if you don't believe this book, throw away your books. If you don't believe that Jesus existed, guess what? Neither does George Washington and Caesar and, you know, uh, Genghis Kong and anybody. Nobody exists. Nothing exists. This is a, 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 a history book that's also a theology book. And so this is a great opportunity for us, a great opportunity for us. Take a deep breath and go look. Um, I see what's going on in Israel. I see what's going on in Palestine. I see it's going. I'm more concerned with you. I'm more concerned with your soul. Ask some questions because the time is near and we have family and we have friends who don't believe and people need to believe people need to understand the truth. Um, this is all just part of the show. Um, and so I want you guys to be ready and I want you to be the messengers of the good news. The good news is you don't have to be in the dark. The truth is right here. The good news is that when we die, we have the blood of Christ. We can be born again. We can live for eternity in heaven, in a new heaven, in a new earth where, you know, there's not border issues. Well, that's just the intro. Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word, the Bible. Thank you for giving us the truth. There's so much untruth in the world. There's so much fake news. There's so much false education. Lord, our schools are filled with teaching everything, but what's real teaching about every kind of opinion, every kind of fallacy, every, everything and anything except the Bible. Ironically, here we are in another situation um, where the Bible speaks to the problems in the Middle East. The Bible speaks about what a real man and a real woman is. And it's, very clear. The Bible speaks about what marriage is. The Bible speaks about what's right and wrong. The Bible speaks truth. And every time we get off of the truth, we see chaos, we see confusion, we see pain, and we see suffering. And so, Lord, we pray for our family, our friends, and our neighbors that they would see the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.